We've been looking uh, over the past few weeks, almost as a standalone talks really, over the summertime, looking at the idea of lament. So if you've come along to the church regularly, or if you're thinking you might come along to the church regularly, or if you listen online, whatever it might be, um, you'll recognize in generally what we do is we work through a series, uh, and each of the talks builds on the other, and, uh, and we, we look at the whole of the perspective uh, of the, the book or the theme that we're looking at. Over the summertime, what we've done is we've looked at the idea of lament, but we've not necessarily tried to connect each one of them. Summertime's always a little bit different, isn't it? I guess in lots of ways, lament can have false perspectives to it, but it speaks very powerfully at the same time about our human experience. In some ways, we use lament to try to, to, to manage or to control the things which are really troubling to us. In the 18th and 19th century, there was a, a movement, I guess an arts movement, a philosophical movement called Romanticism. Romanticism emerged uh, pretty much as a, as a response to the dehumanizing effects of the Industrial Revolution. This massive change that the world saw where people were being crushed into situations, treated as numbers in a, an unprecedented way, where there was uh, small numbers of people making huge amounts of money at the expense of the masses. Doesn't sound remarkably different uh, to our world today, does it? I guess everything that goes around comes around. During that time, at the same time, there was a, a, a as happened until probably for our country until the last century, tuberculosis was a massive challenge. It was a, it was a crippling disease which was spreading. Interestingly, though, tuberculosis during that time gained, gained almost a romantic status. It became the disease which was the desired disease of the artist. I think it was Keats who wrote about wanting to, to, to have TB, like his musical friend, as though in some way it gave a deep insight into something outside of this oppressive world. It, it carries on in our minds almost with the idea, as it was for them, this um, consumption, as it was called, this disease which left you in this waif-like state, kind of pointed at somebody almost too frail and beautiful for this world. You can see, I guess, why romanticism picked up on that particular illness. You're, you're just too beautiful, too gentle for this horrific world. There is something far better for you, perhaps. Interestingly, it persists, and most of us will have heard of the challenges of the uh, Parisian catwalks, where the waif look is still a challenge to us, a desired look, a desired uh, look in the music industry as well. This idea of somebody almost too beautiful for this world. I guess that gives us a little indication of, of romanticizing 
something, kind of taking a hold of it and trying to find a way to control it and and not allow it to be oppressive to us, but for us to find some kind of redeeming property to it. I guess when we come to this psalm, it is very possible for us to lose ourselves in the beauty of the early lament. In fact, I was smiling with somebody earlier. I wonder how many of you actually managed to listen to Psalm 137 being read without thinking of the 1978 Boney M hit by the rivers of Babylon. It's pretty difficult, isn't it? If Some of you are looking at me as if, what is he on? Who are Boney M? If you didn't do that, you're too young. And um, I, I... I applaud you if you didn't do that, and you're old enough to remember. But, but that kind of combination of 1970s disco cheese with the early verses of this chapter could lead us into a place of, of almost creating a romantic idea of lament. Let us not do that. If we do that, we lose the power of this particular psalm. Nor can we approach this psalm almost in an academic way where we're almost sitting behind our desks with our notepads ready to take notes on thoughts and ideas. I think the only way where we can really come to terms with this psalm is by entering into the story, placing ourselves in the narrative of the story. So let me invite you to join me around the campfire as we place ourselves in this particular story. Let's first look at where we are by the rivers of Babylon. In lots of ways, this particular psalm could be poignant for our day. We see so much in our news about dispossessed people people who have been moved from their land for all sorts of reasons, people who are ending up in situations which are, uh, are oppressive or they're running away from war, they're refugees from war, they're, they're, they're kind of uh, moving away from areas of famine. So, so I guess the, the idea of story in human tragedy is incredibly powerful to us. Right the way back to Bob Geldof and Band-Aid, what was, how did that movement really gather pace? It, it was probably with the, one of the first moments in our communicative history where we really started to enter into the stories of the individuals, portraying the story in such a way which was to grab us, to engage with us, to appeal to us and to say, place yourself in this situation and imagine what it would be like for you. Right the way through, I'm sure you would remember many of you to that just horrific um, series of pictures of little Aylan Kurdi, the little toddler who was washed up on the beach in Bodrum when the boat that he was trying to flee to Greece capsized a few hundred yards from shore, having just left the beach. Entering into that story by picture entering into the name and the person and the family, is part of that powerful, emotive engagement 
which this song is about. This song is about being by the rivers of Babylon. This isn't actually, though, a story about the dispossessed refugee. This is even worse. This is about the story of the oppressed slaves taken from their homeland, not running away from their homeland, taken from their homeland, placed into slavery, something which, if we saw happening in the world today, would be uproar, and rightly so. That's what this psalm is about. It's about a group of people God's people who find themselves by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. I think the psalmist is deliberately creating this ironic picture. What does the rivers of Babylon sound like to you? Without Boniam, it still sounds pretty beautiful, doesn't it? And yet by the rivers of Babylon, we sit and we weep because we are not in Zion. We are not God's people, and we are not in God's place. We are God's people, but we are not in God's people in God's place. We are God's people outside of God's place, separated from who we are, separated from our identity. And so we find these people, the singing people of God, weeping by the river. What do they do? The singing people of God don't sing. Do you see that? They don't sing. They hang up their harps in the poplars. That's what this opening is, is presenting to us. This nation of, is, uh, of the Israelites, this people who were known throughout the ancient world as the singing people, are weeping by the side of the river with their harps unused. There is tragedy. There is emotion. There is separation. There is hurt, which is written into the first few lines of this psalm. Isn't it tragic that a, a kind of a, a cutesy 70s disco beat causes the people of God to lose the sense of desperation that this psalm conveys. Isn't that tragic? And yet at the same time, isn't it amazing that God is saying to His people, pen this psalm, write these words, continue to sing about this tragedy. Throughout the ages, the singing people of God continue to sing of this exile moment. And so from exile, we move to, to torment and oppression. While we're there by the rivers of Babylon weeping, our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They say, sing us one of the songs of Zion. We know you're a singing people. You can, you can, it's a bit like, you know, I don't know, going to Wales or something. We know that you all sing in Wales, so, so come on, sing for us. Come on, sing, sing. 
I don't know what this is like. Maybe, picture the scene. Maybe if maybe a, an elite family from the Babylonian empire is, is out on one of these processional day trips to the river. And the Hebrew slaves, Israelite slaves, are there with them, tending to their every whim, quietly weeping to themselves because they are unable to sing the songs of joy. And then they are compelled to sing the songs of joy. This lament is purposefully constructed so that we are asking the question, what is it really like when we feel separated from all that we are as God's people? That's what it's asking us. That's what it continues to ask us today. What is it like when we feel distanced, when we feel isolated, when we feel tormented for believing in this ridiculous idea of a God of hope and pie in the sky? Look, look at who you are. You're slaves. You're nothing. And yet, do you see, do you see the, the irony in this? That the, the non-singing slaves are forced to sing, and then God's people are called to sing of the non-singing slaves forced to sing. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? If you were writing a kind of history to encourage everybody to feel good about their faith, why would you ever write a song that reminds you of the bad days? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? We know why we would do that instinctively, but we generally don't piece together the dots. We would do it because times and words of lament... Times of sadness are precisely what we need at times. Pretending that everything is glitzy and beautiful in the garden of God, in the garden of faith, that everything's lovely and during this nice picnic we make nice cutesy daisy chains is not real life. And thank the Lord that He has penned in His Word songs of real life. Songs of real pain. And he says to his people, don't hold back from being honest with me. Don't hold back from telling me the truth. Don't hold back from, from opening up the reality of where you are. Can I encourage you in that? Don't, please don't, feel a sense of guilt as though your spiritual pain is something to be hidden from God. This is praise, actually. It's saying in the middle of this, I'm reflecting on the fact that I can't sing because I'm not filled with joy. But the fact that I want to be filled with joy to sing those songs is worship in and of itself. God's people, 
brought to a point of being reminded that lament is not a tragic thing. It's a heart-changing thing. So we find the non-singers being forced to sing so that the people of God sing about the non-singers being forced to sing. But here's the question. And the question is posed in verse 4. And it is a critical question that the psalmist asks, isn't it? How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? That is not an academic question. It's a real question. How can I sing songs of joy when I'm not in a place of joy? Let, let me, let me pick, create a picture in your mind. I want you to imagine that you are, you are in Jerusalem. You are surrounded by thousands of people as you take the steps up onto the Temple Mount. And as you're parading up there, you're singing psalms of ascent, songs of joy. You're surrounded by a thousand voices. You're hearing the trumpets and the cymbals. And you're heading up to this place of sheer joy. You are on an ecstatic place in that moment. It's absolutely right that you'll sing songs of joy in that place, isn't it? And the psalmist is asking, how can we sing those songs when we are here? How can we do that? What's, what's at risk? What's at risk emerges? And we can say, what's at risk is don't let me forget Jerusalem. I remember what it was like when we sang those songs. Don't allow me, don't, don't allow me to get to the point where what I'm singing here is empty, meaningless words of joy. Just because I happen to be here. Look at what the psalmist says. How can we sing these songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. What's he saying, this psalmist? He's saying, if I don't remember that Jerusalem is my highest joy, let me forget how to play my harp and let me my tongue stick to my roof of my mouth so I can't sink. Because what I desperately need is to remember that Jerusalem is my joy when I sing these songs, whether I am there or not. Why Jerusalem? How can I sing a song of joy not in Jerusalem? Because it's not about the place. It's about what Jerusalem means. You see, when I get over here into this foreign land, how can I sing a joyful Jerusalem Zion song when I'm not there? It's because Jerusalem means something. What does Jerusalem mean? Jerusalem, the city of peace. Shalom, probably one of the most powerful, evocative words in the language of God's people. Shalom, peace to you. Peace from God to you. This city which represents 
presence of God with God's people. Jerusalem, the place where Abraham was to take his son Isaac to be sacrificed on Mount Moriah. And then at that very point where the nation of Israel was about to be destroyed, God brings a sacrifice of substitute and the nation lives. Now, just listening to that construction of what goes on there should begin to start to spark some thoughts about what Jerusalem means. It means our God is a saving God. It means our God is a protecting God. It means our God is with His people. So when I am in this place being demanded to sing songs of Zion, don't let me forget that it is about my God, who is my God with my people. My saving God, my redeeming God. Don't let me, don't let me fall into the trap because I'm being forced by these oppressors to lose the meaning of what I am singing. <laughs> I didn't know that we were going to sing Abide With Me tonight. But I've got it in my notes, which were written a few days ago. So that, this, is, this is just an amazing kind of combination here. It happens at every final. Cup final, FA Cup final. But uh, did, did anybody see Cass the other night? How good was that? That was pretty good. And we're going to definitely, we are now definitely, sorry, I know that not everybody is supporting Castlewood Tigers tonight. But those of you who are, are definitely, we are definitely going to get a semi-final place. And we might, at home by the way, and we might well end up in the final. And when we get there, we will sing Abide With Me. Just sing it. And it will mean nothing compared to the words that we have just sung. It will mean nothing to so many. It will be empty words. And that's what the oppressors, that's what the tormentors didn't see. They they were listening to empty words with a nice meter and beautiful lyrics and maybe Hebrew harmonies, whatever Hebrew harmonies sound like, and harps that are playing And all of that sounds so beautiful, and yet it is dramatically missing something. Because it is not filled and empowered and rooted with Jerusalem, God's presence with His people. Wow, do you know what? We can do exactly the same. We can do exactly the same. We can enter into a series of words. We can enter into a series of songs We can love the sound, we can love the music, and we can lose Jerusalem, God with us, the city of God's peace with His people. You're the God of this city. Our song choices have been great tonight. Don't let me forget you, Jerusalem. Don't let me forget you. God forbid that I should sing songs and forget that you are my God with me. That's that's lament. That is God-ordained 
authorized words for us to sing in the depths of despair when we feel disconnected from God, when we feel like we are a stranger in a strange land, when we feel as if we are a million miles from Him, and yet there is this inner yearning, and our plea is, don't, 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 don't allow me to forget Jerusalem. Now, the first six verses have been beautiful poetry. They've taken us to beautiful imaginations in our mind. And then we come to a screaming crash and shock for Western readers. And I would say we come to possibly some of the hardest verses in the whole of the Bible for Western modern thinking people. Listen to what it says. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That. It's shocking, isn't it? And maybe you're here this afternoon and maybe, maybe the Bible is in your mind a book of instructions from God. And when you read words like that, you think, whoa. If they're the kind of words that are in the book of instructions from God, I don't want anything to do with this Christian faith. That's why I said we have to sit around the campfire and enter into the story. Enter into the narrative of what is going on. I want you to imagine for a moment what it is like you have a young young couple maybe who are taken into slavery who are there weeping by the rivers of Babylon. Why are they weeping? It's not some kind of spiritual identity alone, perhaps. Perhaps they are weeping as well because they remember the sight of their infant being dashed against the rocks by their oppressor as they were taken into captivity. That is That is horrific, isn't it? That is horrific. And then they're told to sing songs of joy. And the psalmist is entering into that experience. And he's saying that is reality. That is the reality of this world. How can I sing songs when I've observed that, when it flashes back in my mind, that sight every moment? of every day. And let's not pretend, shall we, that that's just the ancient world. Let's not pretend that that bad, nasty world is back there and it doesn't happen any longer. If any of you have seen American Sniper, 
there's a whole series of storylines contained in that which are actually pretty fictitious. But there is one particular scene, a harrowing scene, where the butcher of Baghdad takes a drill to kill the son of an informer. That was not made up. That's true. That's the reality of the world that we live in. And the Bible does not hide from that reality. The Bible does not pretend that that doesn't happen. And the Bible does not pretend that that doesn't happen to God's people. Because here we have a family who are weeping because we remember that. And when we say that and when we see that, what is this psalmist screaming for? I think he's screaming for justice. I want justice. It's misplaced to our Western thinking that I want you to feel the same pain as I felt. There's a sense in which we wouldn't deny that as justice, would we? We wouldn't deny that. There is a sense in which there is a seeming rightness to that. I have it pictured in my mind. So much so that I conclude this psalm, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks so that you feel my pain. Because that's what justice looks like. I I hate the Bible at times because it is so raw with the reality of life and yet at the same time I love it because it doesn't pretend that the world is a cutesy place where we enter into this Christian bubble where everything is lovely and frothy. This is real life. And our experience might be distant from this kind of experience, but believe me, there are people who are experiencing this at the moment and they are screaming out for justice like this and we say, yes, it is misplaced that the infants of the oppressors might be slaughtered on the rocks. It's misplaced, but it is understandable because we're screaming out in this failing world for justice. Now here's the question. Is God just a listening God? Because that's what he's doing here, isn't he? He's saying to God's people, continue to sing these songs. Sing these songs of the reality of life. Is God some kind of cosmic clinical therapy session? Where we come to God and we say, let me, let me pour out all of my reality and, and somehow I hope that as I open up all of this to you that somehow I'll feel better. Is that all that God is? Or is God something more than that? Does God hear pleas for justice alone? Or does He respond to pleas for justice? Let me tell you, He responds to pleas for justice in the most surprising of ways in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. How? 
Because as these pleas go up for the inhumanity of this world, God says, yes. It is so bleak. This sin is so desperate. It is so awful that something dramatic has to be done. Something as dramatic as taking the infants and dashing them against the rocks. But let me go one step further and let me take my own son and figuratively speaking, dash him against the rocks because this world is that bad. That is incredible. That is astounding. That the reality of the bleakness of this world is so bad that God does hear the pleas like this and He says, yes, that kind of justice, that kind of balancing needs to be the response. But my perfect Son is in one sense meek and frail and too beautiful for this world but let me dash him. Let me crucify him. Let his blood be shed. Because justice has to be worked out. That, that is just the most amazing response. Don't read this and say, God's saying that we can have some sort of retributive justice where we go out and we do the same. He's saying, no, I'll resolve it. I know how you feel. I know it's that terrible. And I will resolve it. It will be my son. In Jerusalem. Who is on the rock. And who is bleeding his last. I I don't know about you. But that way in which God brings together the pleas for justice in lament and His perfect justice in response to our sin is the most spectacular of messages that this world can hear. Yes, this world is that bad. Yes, those emotive screams for justice which are misplaced are real. But let me as the God of humanity stand above that situation and orchestrate a response which will surprise you. Perhaps you're looking at these words thinking, I I can't cope with the Bible if it's that bad. And I understand that in one sense. I really do. Because these words are really, really that shocking. But in a similar way that maybe the psalm has been, has lost its poignancy because of a cheesy disco theme, I think sometimes the same has happened with the cross of Jesus Christ. That's lost its power. That has lost its horror. That has lost its scandal and its disgust and its horror. 
because it's become so normal in our vocabulary. Jesus loves me, and He died for me. He was dashed on the rocks like an infant. He was crushed, the one too beautiful for this world in one sense, and yet the one who was perfect to pay the price for those who do not deserve mercy. you know what? I'm just going to close it there and allow those thoughts to just swirl around in our hearts and pray that God will use them.